I go to Grace Community Church. People there, their marriages don't struggle. Everyone else's marriage is good in the church, not mine. Get out of here. It's just foolishness to think that way. Everybody wrestles at some levels. I'm not saying every, mess, every marriage is a mess. It isn't. But what a, what a blessing. But if you need some help and if you need to sit down and talk to someone, you need to do that today. There's lots of opportunities available within our church, people you can talk to, elders you can talk to. You've got many people that you, that you go to small groups with and that you know who could give you lots of great advice and they're not elders and they're not counselors. Hello and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. It is a covenant promise made, and it is a promise made before a holy God, because when it is broken, he says, you've broken covenant. With her, yes, but certainly with me as well. This is the covenant that you made with the wife of your Your companion, your wife by covenant. You promised her, and now you're simply sending her away. And notice this is coming from, from the male standpoint, because it was most often the men who did this. In fact, the women didn't have any right to divorce largely. Jesus will deal with a divorced woman and even a woman who would initiate divorce. But this comes from the male standpoint, because they were the ones who were abusing this. The idea here is that this is a, a wife who has been faithful to you. She has been your companion. She has been faithful to her covenant, and you have sent her away. You have set her aside. And I understand the divorce comes on both sides. And yet this is really actually very stunning because so often in, in really in every culture, all down throughout the ages, down up to the last 100 years, and in many cultures even today, the men get a free pass on all of this. They can do what they want. They have the dominance. They have the power. And so they can, they can deal with women in whatever they, way they want. And God says, you can't do that. Your maleness does not include the dominance of women by, by casting them aside. It's a travesty. You may not do this, men. He's speaking directly to them. Of course, again, it works back the other way as well. God hates divorce because it's treachery in the form of breaking relationship and covenant. Of course, uh, additionally, in in the time of Jesus, in the time of the Old Testament, and again, in in many cultures even today, for the man to break faith with a woman, to break covenant and set her loose, turns her loose underneath the difficulties of life that, that because of the way society is, doesn't even allow her, allows her very little ability to earn her own living or to accomplish things for herself. In the United States, it's much different, but in most cultures, it's not that way. And all the way down throughout the ages, it has always been that when the wife gets turned loose, that she has very little recourse. In fact, the only recourse she has in most societies and and certainly in most of history is to get remarried as quickly as possible so she doesn't die. So she has some way to support herself and her children. It, It was essentially required. She's got to get remarried which is part of the travesty of a man divorcing his wife inappropriately because then it puts her in the position of adultery in order for essentially even to survive. That's been the way it has been down throughout the ages. God says, I hate this, and I hate that you do this. 
because of the devastation that it brings, because you are, you are treacherously breaking your covenant. God also hates it if we look at our text, and this is, this is difficult to draw from the text, and again, the interpreters are doing the best they can, but I think it's very clear, uh, at least certainly, that, that divorce, God hates divorce because it grieves the Spirit of God. Right? Certainly any sin does, and this sin in particular because of the nature of the one flesh union, the intimacy that is supposed to be, uh, is being portrayed and we're supposed to have before God himself. I think our text in Malachi draws out that it's, it's grievous to the Spirit of God and it violates the human spirit as well. I think it's the best understanding of what is being said there about the spirit that, that remains, the spirit of man that's not to be violated. Both are violated in divorce. The nature of intimacy, and, and we've, we've already learned that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, fully immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. A man is essentially sinning against his own spirit when he divorces, and certainly a believer is sitting against the Spirit of God inside of him when he, when he pursues divorce. So God hates divorce because it grieves the Spirit of God and it violates the human spirit. And then in our text again, that's what it says, why he's seeking, it says, but note verse 15, but not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? I think, again, the best understanding here is that God hates divorce because of the harm done to the children of divorce. The idea of marriage is that you're supposed to have godly offspring, that you're supposed to provide a place and where the word of God is taught when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, where a beautiful picture is given of who God is, his character and nature in covenant faithfulness of a man to his wife. And when you break that, you harm the children and you make it as it were, you, you provide a poor environment for godly offspring. I understand that God is sovereign in salvation, that he is in, in sovereign in the salvation of children. The children are not somehow uh, pre predisposed toward salvation because they are born into Christian homes. No, they are benefited by being born into Christian homes because that's where the example of Christ is given and the word of God is given. And when that is not the case, then the home, which is supposed to be the place where the children are, are cultivated in the things of God, when that is broken apart by divorce, it is harmful to the children in every way, and particularly harmful to the work of God. Now, God overcomes these things. We've got several weeks on this, please understand, but, but Jesus comes out the gate very strong. The Bible is very strong about these things, and so I, I can't hold that back. We'll talk about uh, how we work through these things and what happens, and the fact that divorce is not the unpardonable sin. There are many sins that God hates. In fact, it's not even used in Proverbs when he says there, there's you know, seven things that God hates. Divorce isn't even mentioned there. But nonetheless, it is very clear God has a, a hatred of divorce, which is strong and deep for these reasons. It's treachery. It grieves the spirit of God. It harms the human spirit. It causes harm to the children of divorce who are supposed to be godly offspring. It makes it that much harder for them to see and to hear the truth of who God is because of the divorce that is going on. Now we see also largely in the Old Testament, these are, this is another thing that God hates about divorce, not directly in this text, although implied is that God hates divorce because it violated the picture of God's love and faithfulness to his people Israel, to his covenant people, his covenant ethnic people, whom God over and over in the New Testament said, I married you. I found you when you were in the time for love, he says in Ezekiel and other places, and, and, I, and I, I married you, I, I, you became my bride. And the picture of God's faithfulness is being broken by husbands who cast aside their wives who break that covenant. And God says, this, this is supposed to be a picture of my faithfulness to Israel. And here you are violating that picture for all the nations to see. What are they going to think about me? And is that not true? Does not the world look and say, who is this God? That Christians 
would, would enter into what they call a lifelong union. They would stand at the altar and say, uh, in sickness and in health, for better, for worse, for richer or poorer, till death do us part. And then in two weeks, two years, five years, they say, we're parting. Who's that God? What, what kind of powerful God is that? Because the last picture we know, the reason that God hates divorce is that it violates the beautiful picture of Christ's love and faithfulness to the church. Ephesians 5, 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. God hates divorce because it violates everything he stands for. And the world looks and says, what kind of God is this? You are covenantly unfaithful. You're unfaithful to your covenants. You can't even, you can't live with the wife of your youth. So what kind of God is it that would, that would allow this or that, would, that you would say that you serve and then act in such a fashion? Christian divorce is, uh, any divorce, all divorce is a travesty. Christian divorce is, of course, a particular travesty. I think you know the statistics that say 50% of marriages end in divorce. That's actually trending downwards, and it doesn't include all of the different you know, marriages and remarriage and, and those things. And the statistics that say, well, it's just exactly the same in the church. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. It isn't. It is not the same statistics for true believers. It's impossible for that to be the case because they're believers. They're, they're truly changed. Now, there are many divorces among true believers. I'm not saying that. But of course, when they do those surveys, it simply is, hey, do you go to church? Do you, do you have a relationship with God? We're not talking about those who have truly been born again. For those who are truly born again, the divorce rate would, would be, is much lower. And yet, the professing and confessing church, unfortunately, has a divorce rate which is incredibly high, and it taints everyone. So God hates divorce, and God does not permit divorce. Again, there are two exceptions, which we will not focus on this morning, but back in our, our text, really go ahead and go back to Matthew 19, if you are in uh, Deuteronomy. And this is also, it is mentioned briefly in Matthew chapter 5, but we'll stay in Matthew 19 for another moment. Verse 9 I say to you, says Jesus, whoever divorces his wife, again, this is from the standpoint of the man, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And there's been a tremendous amount of discussion on the except for immorality. I'm not going to take time this morning to work through it. We will. It's coming because it's very important. But, so, but I, I hold, I just, just very briefly, I would say I hold that there is a true exception. That is that God does allow for the writing of a certificate of divorce when there has been unrepentant sexual sin. And then he makes that very clear here. He makes it very clear in Matthew chapter 5 because of the nature of sexual sin itself. So I'd say that there does come a time when it is acceptable to have a certificate of divorce written. God himself used it against Israel metaphorically. But that is not the focus ever of God's understanding of marriage. He doesn't say, well, there's marriage. And then, oh, by the way, here's this exception. No, marriage is to be permanent. Because of the sinful nature of our hearts, there are times when sexual immorality is rampant and, and unrepentant. Therefore, there can be a time when divorce is permitted. Paul adds another one in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So uh, here on your outline, God does not permit divorce except for the case of sexual immorality. And I would hold that that is an unrepentant pursuit of sexual immorality, adultery, or some form of sexual deviancy that will not be repented of. And then Paul adds in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, except for an unwilling, unbelieving spouse. In 1 Corinthians 7, 12, he says, but 
To the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. Again, notice how strong the, the command to not divorce is. And a woman has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her. She must not send her husband away. That's the word for divorce. She must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. The unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, divorces. Let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such case, but God has called us to peace. So there are two exceptions where a certificate of divorce is to be accepted or allowed. But the bottom line is that's the very small portion of marriages. Oh, sometimes it ends up that way because there's already been an abandonment. There's already been essentially a pursuit of divorce. The vast majority of divorces are ungodly, unbiblical, and not permitted by God at all does not permit divorce for any reason and almost for no reason. The world, of course, finds this to be absolutely unacceptable. And unfortunately, the Christian world tends to find it to be unacceptable as well and makes all kinds of other provisions for divorce. And yet the scripture is clear. Those two are the only exceptions. And the vast majority of the writing teaching of scripture is that God does not permit divorce and that he does not allow it, that he does not desire it, and that it, when, when it comes and when it happens, it brings adultery. Now, before we move to the, our final point, I want to say very clearly here that God provides strength not to divorce. God provides strength not to divorce. He hates divorce because he loves marriage. He's given us all the strength and resources we need to revitalize the worst marriage, to transform it into a picture of his love and covenant faithfulness. The salvation and sanctification provided in Christ bring a means by which marriage can be protected and enriched by all that and be all that God has intended for it to be. I just want to give you a couple of verses here. So much there's much negative we're discussing this morning. So I want to bring the, the positive nature of what God has allowed for you because you might be struggling in a difficult marriage. And you might certainly know people and, and, and believers who are on the verge of divorce. And you just simply say, well, you can't do that. Well, you need to tell them that but you need to proclaim to them the reality of what God has done for them in Christ, that they might have the hope that they need, that this can be fixed. And for some of you, this is hope much needed, even this morning, perhaps. Your Valentine's Day was not so great. Your marriage is rough and rocky and difficult and fraying at the edges. Yes, you need to understand that, you, that divorce is not an option for you. But you also need to understand that God provides you what you need so that your marriage might be joyful, beautiful, and a picture of who he is. Just a couple of thoughts here. We have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, and therefore we have the strength, resources, and security necessary to treat others in a holy and, and beloved fashion, Colossians 3.12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Do you have a complaint against your spouse? Do you have a deep complaint against your spouse? Sin that is stacked up over years. You've been married for 20 years and the sin just continues to stack. The Lord gives you the strength to forgive. He called you from before the beginning of time. He set his love upon you. He, he called you holy. He made you holy. He gives you the resources to be holy. He set his love upon you so you can set your love upon someone else regardless of their worthiness and regardless of what you receive in return. If you never get anything back from your spouse the rest of your days, you could and should love her or him until you die. That's, that's the issue. This can be done. 
It should be done, it must be done, that our marriages be permanent. And because of what God has done for you, it is possible for every believer sitting here in this room. No believer ever need divorce. Again, we'll, we'll, uh, I can only qualify that in, in, in several weeks with, with one exception. But you personally do not have to live in such a way that, that, that you would engender divorce in that way. We've been chosen of God, holy and beloved. We have been given the great power of God for steadfastness and patience in relationships, Colossians 1.10. So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You have the great power of God for steadfastness and patience, that you would not waver, that you would not falter, that you would be patient until the end. Why do you think you need the great power of God? Because doing that in a marriage is very difficult. So we spend so much time here at Grace trying to prepare our young people to enter into marriage because at its best, marriage is difficult. You're trying to live together with another sinner for all of your life. You're, you're rubbing against one another in so many different and difficult ways. Although there's much joy and beauty to be had, there's also much difficulty and sin to be dealt with. But you have the great power of God. Power that created the universe. Power that, that raised Jesus from the dead. This is the power that you have within you to see that your marriage is holy, righteous, and joyful. You've been given the love of God, which never fails. 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the love that you've been given. What, 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 is, what is left out in all things? So if you are hopeless, if you are not believing, if you are refusing to bear, if you aren't enduring, then you aren't pursuing biblical love. Because biblical love does all of those things. Well, I mean, the spouse I have, they're my enemy. Doesn't let you off the hook. Bible says, love your enemies. There's no place you can run from the command of love, none. And yet it is your great joy to do so. It's not some kind of bondage that you are in. It's the greatest joy possible to be able to pour out your love. And imagine being able to do that in any circumstance. Regardless of how difficult your marriage may be, you're not locked there in some kind of bondage. You are placed there purposely by God that you might pour out your love to another person all of your days. It's a precious privilege, even if they don't respond. You've been granted that. To have one person in all of your life, for all of your life, to whom you will pour out the love of God. Sometimes we don't view it that way. Why well, enter into this so, so I, I would get something back? Well, certainly you did. Nothing wrong with entering into it that you would get something back in the, from the standpoint of, yeah, I want them to love me. You wouldn't have entered into marriage if you didn't want them to love you. It doesn't guarantee you're going to get it back. It doesn't guarantee you're going to have all that you thought you were going to have in marriage. We enter in ultimately saying, I will love you till I die. Because that is what God did for me. We've been given the humility of God, which brings the grace necessary to overcome sin. James 4.4, 4, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Some of you are wrestling in your marriages because you are proud. 
and your arrogance is driving you towards divorce, humble yourself and you will receive the grace necessary that you might continue to stand and continue to love. We've been given the church of God which provides support and accountability that we might not get caught up in the deceitfulness of sin, Hebrews 3.13. Encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You've been given the forgiveness of God by which you may fear the Lord and draw, draw close to him in a reverential awe so that you can continue to love others and forgive them. Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Perhaps some of us are not taking hold of the forgiveness of God enough or understanding what it means so that we don't have a proper fear of him and thus we will not forgive our spouses. And we will not soften our hearts and humble ourselves in forgiving them and refusing to be bitter. The last reason I'll give for this morning is that we've been given the Spirit of God and the Word of God, which enables us to overcome any sin. Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against such things. There is no law. There's nothing that can keep you from doing those things if you have the Spirit of God inside of you. Your sin fights against it, I understand that, but it cannot overcome you because the Spirit through the Word enables you to obey God in everything that He has commanded and to find joy in it. So we need to understand that God has given us everything necessary and on all of the strength not to divorce. Well, second point here, the consequences of divorce. And this is again now back in Matthew 5, although you could stay in 19 because he says essentially the same thing. The reason that that divorce is not permissible. The reason that it is, it is Jesus puts so strongly his command that you do not divorce is that when you divorce, then you cause the other person, and, as, and if you remarry, as we will see, that you cause them to commit adultery. Adultery becomes the consequence of divorce. So divorce brings adultery upon the woman. In Matthew chapter 5, he says, he who divorces or writes a certificate of divorce makes her commit adultery. Now, I think it is clear from even from the context of the verse, that that's referring to when and if she remarries, which was almost in, entirely certain. It's not committing adultery the moment the divorce is given. It's not a metaphorical adultery because the, the, the marriage itself has been broken through a certificate of divorce. It is causing her to commit adultery when she remarries because the very next last part of, the, of Matthew chapter 5, verse 32 says, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The whole issue here is marriage. When you enter back into a marriage covenant, when there has been an unbiblical divorce, which nearly every divorce is, or the vast majority of them are, when you enter into that covenant again, or into another covenant, adultery is committed at that point. Now, we don't have time this morning to deal with all the issues of, is it an ongoing adultery? I would simply say this, that when that adultery has been committed, there's been an unbiblical divorce, and then the man or the woman or both remarry, that that is considered adulterous, right? When that relationship is entered into, and even before, I would say, before the physical union, when the commitment has been made, because remember, that's the covenant. It's not, so, it's not, it's not only the physical action, but also the commitment to enter into another marriage that you're not supposed to be in because you weren't supposed to divorce in the first place. And God says, that's adulterous. That's the issue. Now, I think we will, we will certainly find that that adultery of entering into another marriage after there has been an unbiblical divorce is certainly something that God forgives. 
And it is not an ongoing state of adultery in that marriage that God will never recognize then the marriage that you have after the original one. We're going to have to flesh that out from Scripture. But it doesn't undo in any way the strength of this prohibition. It says don't divorce. Because when you write that certificate of divorce, self-righteous Pharisee, what you are really doing is causing your wife, when she remarries, which is nearly 100% certain because you cannot survive without it, she's going to enter into adultery. You're forcing her into an adulterous initial relationship. It's evil, of course, in, in, in every way. But that would be the case. And it says if a man marries a, a divorced woman, he commits adultery as well. So divorce brings adultery upon the man. Now, again, that's not specifically speaking of the man who did the divorce who, or who initiated the divorce in Matthew chapter 5. But in Matthew chapter 19, look what it says. It speaks to the man's side as well. I say to you, verse 9, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So it goes at it from both sides. The divorced woman commits adultery when she remarries and the man who marries her commits adultery. The divorced man, if he's the one, who, regardless of who initiated it, if he divorces his wife, then he enters into another marriage, then he too has committed adultery. So whenever there is an unbiblical divorce, when, the mar- when, when they are then, then entered into, right, there is adultery committed. Now, what we will see over the next couple of weeks is, is I do believe the scripture teaches there is an innocent party, as it were. Right? That the one who, that's why the except for immorality, I believe that, that applies when there has been a merit or a divorce because there has been immorality and ongoing unrepentant sin, that there is in fact an innocent party someone who may then enter into marriage without committing adultery. But Jesus is not dealing directly with those ramifications or all of them here. Let us not again undo the seriousness of the consequences here. An unbiblical divorce leads to adultery on both sides. An unbiblical divorce. So that, those, are, those are the consequences. Jesus confronted them, the John MacArthur, with the proper interpretation of God's law. He said that every time a man without proper cause turned his wife loose to remarry, he forced her into adultery, which made him guilty also. In addition, the man who married the former wife and the woman who married the former husband were likewise guilty of adultery. The result was multiplied adultery. Jesus' whole point is that divorce leads to adultery. These ramifications are are huge. And the idea, the thought that we would be, we would be turning loose spouses and, and, then, and then engaging or really forcing them into adulterous relationships, as it were, is something that should cause us to shudder. And it's, it's a stunning indictment on divorce. Jesus, the Bible, God himself, right, see divorce as a grievous evil. And we need to see it the same. And then lastly, here on your outline, so... Divorce brings adultery upon the man, it brings adultery upon the woman, and it brings devastation upon the family. The tragedy of divorce goes far beyond the sin of adultery. The broken lives, broken families, harmed children, and tortured relationships give testimony to the devastation of divorce. The continual ripping apart of the marriage bond rips the very fabric of society and paves the way for a host of evils which pile up one upon the other. So as, as, as we finish out here this morning, sobering words, many things to think about probably for as, as just you consider the nature of your own marriage, as you consider your own experiences. I don't know where you all come from. I don't, I don't know the, the, the issues of divorce and remarriage that you have faced. But first and foremost, let us understand that God loves marriage 
He hates divorce, and so we are to pursue everything necessary in our current state. You can't go back and undo things in the past. We'll talk about how you work through them. We'll talk about forgiveness and other things, but you cannot undo them. The issue for this morning is this. Will you love your marriage, and will you love marriage in general? Will you do everything possible to support it because of the grievous nature of divorce? Jesus pulls no Punches. The Bible pulls none, and we must not either. Do you love marriage? Would be a question I have for you this way. No, not just are you in a marriage, and not even just do you love your marriage. Do you love marriage in general? Are you pursuing the education, the, the environment which enables others and yourself to have godly, lifelong marriages. That's what a church is supposed to do, and you are to be part of it. It's not just the leaders of the church that love marriage and, and hopefully get you know, some other people to do so. When everybody loves it, when everybody understands it, and then works with every other person to hold up marriage as in, in all the right ways as a good and godly state and the ways to stay in it and flourish in it, then we will we will be protecting ourselves against the grievousness of the sin. So do you love marriage? Are you thankful for your marriage? Did you just hand your wife flowers because that's what you were supposed to do on Valentine's Day and have an emo- a moment of emotion for that? Or are you thankful for every part of your marriage and what God has allowed you to do? That he's allowed you to enter into this lifelong covenant with one through whom he desires to, to, to pour out his love. He longs to pour out love to her or to him through you. Are you thankful? Are you taking hold of every means possible to cause your marriage to reflect the character and nature of Christ? Or have you gotten lazy in your marriage? I'm busy. I've got things to do. Have you allowed sin to build up that you just simply will not deal with? That's too much. It's too hard. I won't deal with it. I'm not going there. You have to go there. You have to continue to pursue this. Otherwise, the picture of Christ is marred even within your marriage, and you are heading for the ultimate picture or the ultimate severing of that picture of divorce. It is, it is devastating to me how many people are getting divorced now at 40, 50. Your parents are getting divorced. It's crazy because they've been building the seeds of it all along and society has loosened up its structure so that it no longer holds it together and the church is not doing what it needs to do to hold marriages together with every ounce of the power of Christ necessary. Are you taking hold of every means possible to cause your marriage to reflect the character and nature of Christ? And then lastly, I would ask you, do you need to get help in your marriage? Are you just plodding along and you can't, you can't fix it and you're embarrassed to go talk to someone because, well, yeah, I'm a deacon in the church. I'm an elder in the church. I can't, I can't have anyone want, know that my marriage is rough or that I'm struggling or that I have needs. I'm, I'm a leader in a small group. I go to Grace Community Church. People there, their marriages don't struggle. Everyone else's marriage is good in the church, not mine. Get out of here. It's just foolishness to think that way. Everybody wrestles at some level. I'm not saying every, mess, every marriage is a mess. It isn't. What, what, a, what a blessing. But if you need some help and if you need to sit down and talk to someone, you need to do that today. There's lots of opportunities available within our church, people you can talk to, elders you can talk to. You've got many people that you, that you go to small groups with and that you know who could give you lots of great advice, and they're not elders and they're not counselors. They give you great advice. But if you need something a little bit more serious, then you need to get serious, and you need to go sit down and say, we have some serious work to do, and we want you to help us do that. God hates divorce, but he loves marriage, and he loves his people. And he loves his church. 
So let's celebrate that by pursuing those things which will lead to strong marriages in our own congregation. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time together this morning. I thank you that you do, in fact, love marriage, that it is, you have designed it as a picture of who you are. And I pray that you would help us to live according to your principles, that we would live in your love, that we would display to the world the beauty of marriages, which although there are wrestles and struggles, that they ultimately shine forth your love and your beauty as they stay together, as we pursue one another for, for a lifetime, and as we give testimony to the word of your greatness in doing so. In your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the SOLA and Essentials Conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.